How do we think about representation? Who speaks for the trees? How do we ensure that representation is as pluralistic as ecological systems themselves? They are no longer objects. They become subjects when these personhood laws are passed. Struggles to recognize non-humans in new ways within the domain of the law often become in practice very heated political struggles. You're listening to the SEI podcast series brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Good evening or good morning for those of you who are in other time zones or maybe good middle of the night. I'd like to commence by acknowledging that I am on the unceded lands of the Darawal people and to pay my respect to elders past and present and to thank them for their care of multi-species relationships. The University of Sydney is on the unceded land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and I would like to pay my respects to elders past and present of the Gadigal people also. I thank you very much for joining us this evening for this panel event entitled Redefining Who Matters, Institutionalising Multi-Species Justice. This event is hosted by the Sydney Environment Institute, which we normally say is one of the global leaders of multidisciplinary environmental research. Uh, But I like to think also that we are part of a growing collective of organisations that recognise the importance of bringing whatever capacities we have to the environmental and climate crisis. And we do that through our intellectual endeavours and our partnerships. My name's Danny Solomon. I'm a professor in sociology and criminology. I'm the deputy director of the Sydney Environment Institute. One of the deputy directors of the Sydney Environment Institute, we are now three. And I'm also one of the founding, uh, one of the founders of the Multi-Species Justice Collective, and I have had the pleasure and honour of working in part of that collective since its inception. So the topic of tonight's event is to think about what does it mean to institutionalise multi-species justice in the face of regressive political developments. Now, when we came up with that idea, it was prior to the Australian federal election and prior to some other developments, one in particular just this week on Sunday in Colombia, there was the election of a president and vice president who Uh, came to office on the platform of a rights of nature, protecting nature and ending fossil fuel dependence. So perhaps it's more accurate to characterise the context of the moment as one of increasing polarisation and the intensification of these different types of camps. On the one hand, uh, expansion and intensification of the types of efforts that are being made to seriously address environmental issues and the climate crisis. In Australia, we have more explicitly climate representatives in the federal parliament than we've ever had before. On the other hand, there's an intensification and a morphing of the politics of regression. So this week, The head of Greenpeace Australia, David Ritter, tweeted that going slow is the new denial. And I think that that's a new denial amongst with a bunch of other morphed denials, pretend action, the mantra of sustainability and doomism, as Michael Mann has pointed out, being amongst them. So for the context for uh, many of us who have been working on and are working on multi-species justice, is really this this question of what does it mean to take what has largely been a set of conceptual questions about what does justice mean when we refract it through a multi-species lens to what is that going to look like in terms of institutional transformation and what does it take to bring that about. And here, as well as the current context, which I mentioned, we also face some really old chestnuts about what does radical politics look like and how do you do it? Specifically, when the types of transformations that we know need to be brought about are ones that 
existing institutions are systematically hostile to, what's the most effective strategic approach? Do you try and do reform at the edges within the logics of existing systems or do you push for more radical reforms? And an example that is very close to my heart is the question of ecocide. So ecocide has been named as a crime since 1972, so 50 years, and despite many efforts to get it into international law, it barely shows up at all. Last year, the Stop Ecocide Foundation uh, sponsored a group of experts who came up with a definition of ecocide and a proposal that it should be inscribed into the Rome Statute at the International Criminal Court. They crafted that definition in a way that was sufficiently consonant with the definition of existing crimes against humanity, so they thought it would have a hope of getting in. But the way that they defined ecocide, they said it either needs to be illegal which the whole problem is that most environmental destruction happens under the colour of the law, or wanton, where wanton is defined as uh, disproportionate to the social and economic benefits. In other words, you can commit ecocide provided that human beings uh, benefit to a sufficient degree. And so one can see that there was a trade-off between doing something that they thought would be institutionalizable and doing something which conforms with the problematic logics that we're trying to overcome in the first place. So these are the sorts of questions that we want to tackle in this discussion tonight. And I'm thrilled that we have four brilliant speakers uh, to tackle them together. Uh, not that we will ever come up with answers, but we want to begin the conversation. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce each of them in turn and ask them a question and we'll chat for about 30 minutes and then we'll have an opportunity for you to ask questions and at that point I will ask you to put questions into the chat. So our first, uh, the first panellist who I'm going to uh, ask a question to is Dr Erin Fitzhenry. Erin is a senior lecturer in anthropology and development studies at the University of Melbourne, and we're thrilled that she's one of our 2022 visiting fellows at the Sydney Environment Institute. Erin works primarily on transnational social movements with a particular interest in global movements for the rights of nature in Ecuador, the United States and Australia. And that is where I'm going to ask you to focus Aaron, so this is a really big question and I know you've only got a few moments to answer it, but hopefully you can give us some indicative answers. Um, so as many people know, Ecuador was the first country on this planet to grant the rights of nature in its constitution in 2008. Uh, in, the, in the ensuing 14 years, uh, 15 countries have, have instituted similar rights so how, if at all, have these types of legal expansions, these constitutional expans expansions enhanced multi-species justice and what lessons can be learned uh, for the ongoing struggles that we're now trying to think about how do we strategize going forward? Thanks for the question, Danny. Um, I wanted to begin uh, just quickly by acknowledging that I'm coming to you today from the unceded lands of the Wandry people of the, of the Kulin Nation and to pay my respects as well to elders past, present and emerging uh, and to thank them uh, for their extraordinary stewardship of, of these lands for many generations. So before focusing on Ecuador, I wanted to just begin by flagging that experimentations with these rights have really exploded in recent years. Um, with efforts at many different scales from the municipal to the global across many different countries, across many different jurisdictions. And these look quite different uh, in different places in ways that I'm not gonna have time to explore tonight. Um, I'm just gonna focus on Ecuador again, partly because as, as you said, Danny, it was the first country in the world to enshrine these in their national constitution. And partly because it shows, I think the kind of mixed, um, but perhaps slowly promising results that we're seeing in many of the countries where these experiments are taking place. So just quickly by way of background, in 2008, Ecuador became the first country in the world to enshrine these rights in four articles of its national constitution. 
And these include the, the right to what it calls, quote, the integral respect for the maintenance and regeneration of nature's life cycles, the right to be restored, and the state's obligation to, quote, apply preventive and restrictive measures on activities that might lead to the extinction of species or the destruction of ecosystems. So I just wanna make three points about these, these rights, which I hope will be um, uh, balanced. So the first thing to say about how these have played out thus far in Ecuador um, is that there were a number of challenges to how they were first articulated. And I think we can draw um, some, some broader um, lessons here. First, they were written into a new constitution, a beautiful constitution in many ways. But, but one that is so full of rights that there's a kind of a rights gridlock, if you will, that I think the state has been able to use to its advantage. And to some degree, this is one of the major problems with rights discourses of all sorts. They can always be selectively interpreted by elite state and corporate actors, played off against each other. Again and again, we see the rights of investors or of consumers trumping the rights of communities or of nature. And indeed, we've seen this in Ecuador with the right to development often taking precedence over the rights of nature. And this, I would argue, was a real problem during the first decade following the, the constitutional recognition of these rights. The Ecuadorian state, for all kinds of important reasons, increasingly under pressure to address poverty and social inequality, often used these rights against those who contested their development imperatives. And as many people have pointed out, civil society groups and environmental NGOs fighting these large extractive projects, particularly strategic ones, or ones that were constructed as essential to the national interest, um, uh, often found themselves uh, uh, decided against in courts who, who tended to decide with uh, the Ecuadorian government. So that's the, the first um, uh, thing to know that, that rights for ecosystems in themselves are not necessarily a solution to the problem of multi-species injustice, however we construe that. The second thing to note about the case of Ecuador is that unlike the case of similar legal developments in other parts of the world, and I think Christine is going to talk a little bit about this, the Constitution of Ecuador did not clearly identify processes by which communities or individual people could seek to represent particular ecosystems. That is, it did not clearly articulate a structure through which the interests of particular ecosystems could be articulated or defended, right? The door was kind of just thrown wide open. Anybody is able to bring a case on behalf of nature. And this has meant again, that there are disagreements about who exactly should be seen as an appropriate representative of nature's interests. And this connects to my third point, and I'm, I'm winding uh, down here, um, which is that in all the cases I've looked at, I'm struck by the fact that struggles to recognize non-humans in new ways within the domain of the law often become in practice very heated political struggles that are less about the kinds of issues that preoccupy social and political theorists working in this space, how to develop normative claims about who deserves justice, what justice might look like when applied to other than humans, so on and so forth. And they're much more about very um, human, if you will, issues around who has the power and authority to make decisions about non-human nature. Should it be ministries of the environment, indigenous communities, local communities of all sorts, how much consultation is required, what kinds of expertise should be recognized, at what levels, under what conditions can communities refuse projects that may lead to unjust outcomes for other species. These are deeply um, political questions and, and they really come up in every uh, case that I can think of that has tried to advance uh, rights for nature. However, since 2018 or so, um, and I'm gonna end on this high note, we're also seeing, I think, some promising shifts in these trends. And I'm gonna just quickly note one of those, um, which is that in 2018, local communities around uh, a Chinese owned and operated gold and silver mine, a kind of um, medium sized mining project known as the Rio Blanco project brought a protective action on behalf of the highland Paramo, which is a, a, a kind of a high altitude wetlands to the provincial court of Aswai, and this is in the southern part of the country. And here the local community successfully argued, even after appeals from the Ministry of Mining, that this project was likely 
to be a violation of the rights of nature and a threat to the human right to water. These are very, very um, water laden uh, ecosystems. And then it was already a violation of the right to free prior and informed consultation. And this was a case that was decided much to the surprise of many of us uh, in favor of the communities. And four years later, this mine is still not operating. And this is really, lest this seem like uh, sort of insignificant, this is actually really a remarkable development. And again, Rights of Nature didn't do it by itself, right? It, the, the, the judges in this case depended on uh, arguments that well, went well beyond that. But four years later, this, this was a strategic project for the government of Ecuador. And it was not just at, at the stage of exploration or advanced exploration, where we know the likelihood of being able to stop such projects is significantly higher. It was an already operating uh, mine. So to date, this is a success story, I would argue, and one that has also been followed by other rulings on behalf of nature in the constitutional court. So just um, very quickly, uh, by way of closing, what are the key lessons here? Um, this has been a difficult struggle in Ecuador for all kinds of reasons, but these rights, it seems to me, in conjunction with other human rights and particularly indigenous rights, seem to be gaining some purchase in both provincial courts and now in the constitutional court. And in Ecuador, I think what's really striking is that they seem to be adding to the kind of kind of remarkable momentum around recognizing indigenous rights, not just the consultation, but to something more like consent. And I think this is a trend that's likely um, to continue to intensify, hopefully. However, just one note of caution is that I think also in the years to come, we're gonna see mining companies pushing back uh, on the Ecuadorian government uh, very aggressively. And I think we're already seeing this with efforts to sue the state um, for their investment losses, and or we'll see the companies, uh, I certainly saw this in my time in Ecuador, finding, trying to find innovative ways to position themselves uh, as the defenders of the rights of nature. So I think it's really important to think more expansively beyond rights discourses about how to ensure justice for multi-species communities. And I'm increasingly convinced that it needs to entail a much stronger focus on indigenous rights to free prior uh, and informed consent. So um, kind of a, a long answer there, Danny, uh, but I hope that um, began to address the question. So thank you for the question. Thank you so much. Uh, one, of the, uh, one of the interesting threads that I just wanna pull out to start with is what you said about rights when we're talking about highly contentious areas very quickly move into political contention. And hopefully David Schlossberg will take that up when he's talking about democratic innovations. It's one of the things that often when we're talking about a theory of multi-species justice and the response we get is, well, that theory needs to give us an order of priorities and some decision-making principles. And our pushback is very often, actually, that's what politics has to do. And that's why you need to set up just processes. But hopefully David will take that up. Uh, our second panellist, who I'm also really thrilled to have here tonight, is Nicole Rogers. Nicole was one of the founding members of the School of Law and Justice at Southern Cross University and is just about to take up as a position, a position as Professor of Climate Law at Bond University. Uh, we have also been privileged to have Nicole as one of our 2022 visiting fellows at the Sydney Environment Institute. Nicole's most recent research is in the areas of wild law, climate change litigation, and climate change activism. From 2014, she has co-led a project on wild law judgments and is now working on an Anthropocene judgment project. So that's where I'm gonna focus my questions to you, Nicole. So can you tell us a little bit about what that project is about? and what possibilities for change or adaptation exist in the common law? A question which is extremely ripe in the wake of the two Sharma decisions, the first one that seemed to open up these possibilities for the common law and the second one which shut them right down again. Oh, thanks, Danny. Yes, I wish I had time to talk about the Sharma case. It's just so fascinating um, in the context of our intergenerational responsibilities and obligations. Um, but I, um, I will focus on the Wild Law Judgment Project because I think that is more pertinent to this issue of multi-species justice. Um, but just before I 
talk about that. Um, the Anthropocene Judgment Project, which you've mentioned, is it, which is the current project that I'm co-leading, is very much about exploring um, the possibilities and the plasticity of the common law in the context of these really um, enormous challenges that we face as we um, struggle through this era of the Anthropocene. So what, are, what is the future of the common law? How can the common law respond to challenges that are really unprecedented and, and just massive in their scope? Um, but the Wild Law Judgment Project um, is, is probably more relevant to multi-species justice, specifically to multi-species justice. And, and just to give you um, the background, to that. Um, this was a project that um, was led by myself and Dr Michelle Maloney, who is the convener of the Australian Earth Laws Alliance um, for three years from 2014 to 2017, and it culminated in a collection of wild law judgments, casebook, if you like. Um, and the project was um, inspired by a, a body of feminist judgment projects uh, which continue to this day which involves rewriting existing judgments from a feminist perspective and there have been a lot of offshoots from those including a recent Indigenous Judgments project. Um, the key defining characteristic of the Wild Law Judgments project uh, was bringing a, a wild law or earth-centred perspective to this process of judgment rewriting or as we, we did it with the Wild Law Judgment Project and certainly we'll do in the Anthropocene Judgment Project, constructing hypothetical or future judgments um, in which um, we prioritise um, Earth, its many life forms and communities, the well-being of non-human species come to the foreground of the judgments. Um, now, Wild Law Judgment writing in the project occurred across all areas of law. So I think um, certainly traditionally it's been seen that these concerns should be marshaled into environmental law. Um, we had judgments in all sorts of categories of law, including tort law, which is the, of course, relevant to the Sharma case. And I'll talk a bit more about um, one of the judgments in that context in a bit. Um, Cormac Cullinan, who coined the phrase wild law in his 2002 book, has said there's flashes of wild law in existing legal doctrines, um, but they are very much just flashes. And obviously, uh, law is profoundly anthropocentric and, and indeed property-centred. Um, so if you're looking at planetary boundaries, preservation of ecological integrity and the well-being of non-human species that are secondary considerations in most judgments and this was um and and here i, I just want to revert back to what erin was saying about a beautiful constitution in ecuador because we don't have a beautiful constitution in australia and um and just um i just want to talk about a particular case which i think brings home to me um the anthropocentric focus of the common law this is Colin Whitfield, a 1988 case, and um, I've been teaching constitutional law for, well, actually for decades now, and uh, I'm teaching this case, and, and doing so as a committed environmental activist. Um, but for many years, I just followed the conventional constitutional narrative in relation to this case, which is that it is the case in which the relevant section, the interpretation of the relevant section of the Constitution on freedom of trade was settled. But actually, it's also a case about crayfish. And if you read the judgment, it's a short judgment, um, you can see that there were three agreed facts from the magistrate's court when it came before the High Court. And they are these. The crayfish in question were brought to Tasmania chilled but still alive in packages. They were put into saltwater ponds to revive them. Those sufficiently revived were chilled in brine to minus five degrees centigrade and shipped in bags to the United States. Those that did not revive sufficiently were held by the respondents, pending final determination as to their disposal. Now, um, the case concerned a Tasmanian regulation which prohibited the possession of undersized crayfish, but that was done because they were valued as a commercial commodity, not because there was any concern about um, their well-being. Um, and by the time the case arrived in the High Court, the the issues have been well defined as constitutional and legal issues and again the crayfish, the well-being of the crayfish was very, very much not 
um, part of the High Court's reasoning. But um, I guess I'm talking about this case partly because it took me so long to look at what was effectively a subtext in the in the decision, but actually it's not a subtext if you're looking at, at it from a wild law perspective, which is the crayfish themselves. Um, 97, long dead, undersized crayfish. Um, but also um, because in April this year, the UK Parliament passed legislation um, recognising that decapods, which include crayfish and cephalopods, are in fact sentient beings which experience pain and suffering. Um, so, so that's just by way of introduction to what we did with the Wild Law Judgment Project, which is a departure from this customary judicial approach or indifference to non-human species. And just to give you some examples, um, Brian Preston, who is the Chief Judge of the New South Wales Land and Environment Court, uh, actually contributed a judgment which he'd written before the project and delivered in a 2012 mock trial um, organised by the EDO. And in that trial, it was actually set in the future. Uh, the green sea turtles were um, taking an action against the Australian and Queensland government um, as uh, in public nuisance as a consequence of those governments. Um, firstly, their approval of coal mines, which, as we know, contribute to global greenhouse gas emissions and therefore to climate change and therefore to the destruction of the Great Barrier Reef, which happens to be the habitat of the green sea turtles. Um, but also their emissions um, in that they haven't, well, certainly at that time, but certainly today, haven't taken adequate mitigatory um, measures in relation to reducing Australia's greenhouse gas emissions. And, uh, and just Judge Preston uh, extended the category of rights holders in law to include the green sea turtles. And, and also found that they experienced special injury as a consequence of those governments' acts or emissions. Um, so obviously a very different approach to what we see in, in conventional um, judging, although uh, Judge Preston is, is, is by many standards a radical judge when it comes to his judgments in the Land Environment Court. And he did comment that writing hypothetical judgment was a lot easier than writing a real judgment because you don't have um, disgruntled litigants or appeals. Um, we had uh, a judgment contributed in relation to seven lungfish adversely affected by um, a dam and uh, Benedict Coyne, who wrote that judgment, um, did it in an eco-utopian context where a Rights of Nature and Mother Earth Act conferred standing on the lungfish and they were successful in an action in trespass against the dam operators. Um, Cormac Cullinan contributed a judgment which actually originated in the one of the International Rights of Nature Tribunal um, proceedings. So these are popular tribunals which are set up as an alternative to state tribunals to decide um, matters in the context of um, earth-centred justice. And, uh, and, and that particular decision was um, uh, concerned the Great Barrier Reef again and an action brought under the Universal Declaration for the Rights of Nature against the Australian government and state governments. But just reverting back to tort, which is where Danny started with the Sharma case, um, I think the wild law judgment in our collection, which was probably the most striking judgment, was that written by uh, Professor B. Shengo, who's a Buddhist practitioner as well as a legal scholar and she did was revisit a seminal case in the law of tort um, in the era of negligence, Donahue and Stevenson. And that case is widely recognised as founding modern law of negligence, establishing the duty of care that we owe to our neighbour in more. Um, and this, of course, was the doctrine that um, Justice Bromberg invoked in the Sharma case. Or, or had invoked for him and decided um, in, and applied in the um, Sharma case. Um, but it, our neighbours in law do not include our non-human uh, companions. So this case involved the uh, inadvertent uh, consumption of a decomposing snail in a bottle of ginger beer that was purchased by a friend for a Scottish widow. She was the, the widow was the person who drank or consumed the snail. And, uh, and she brought a successful cause of action against the manufacturer. So what Bee Chen did was, um, was 
look at the snail. So she looked at uh, a case that could be brought by the snail against the manufacturer, um, applying Buddhist precepts. And she said that uh, the principle of negligence could apply to, to non-human sentient beings. And here, in fact, the snail had uh, an action against the manufacturer because there must have been some act or omission which led to its fatal injury and its um, death in that bottle of ginger beer. So these sorts of cases highlight possibilities for, for multi-species justice. If we look at existing cases or if we look at hypothetical cases, we can really toy with um, existing legal doctrines and also just hone in on the, the subtext, the invisible subtext, which is often the sufferings of, of non-human species. But I just wanted to finish, I think when I think of multi-species justice, I think, you know, we think, and particularly in the context of judging, we think of humans um, doing the judging. Um, but I think we also have to reverse that and think about how animals judge us and do they judge and how they might judge. And um, I always think of Jacques Derrida's um, The Animal That Therefore I Am, where he talks about the animal gaze and being regarded by his cat and how that is the gaze of the absolute other, that it's impenetrable and secret. And um, But unless we somehow uh, work our way into imagining how we could be viewed through the eyes of the other, I don't think that we can really get to that goal of justice, multi-species justice. Um, that, that, that's, we have to invert, I guess, the roles. Thank you so much, Nicole. I have so many responses to what you're saying. I actually disagree with Derrida. I think that it's pretty transparent how we're being judged, uh, I have to say. And one other small comment just in relation to that Preston decision, if the justices on the appeal bench of the full court had been hearing the appeal, they would have overturned the the turtles right because they would have said that the relationship between approving the mine and the harm to the turtles was not sufficiently proximate so I just bring that up because it's such a good example of the liberal logics that still operate in the law which in no way are capable of encompassing the, the type of chains of harm that we know are actually being generated. But I will move on because we've still got two other uh, brilliant speakers. Our third panellist is Christine Winter. Christine is a senior lecturer in the politics program at the University of Otago and a research affiliate at the Sydney Environment Institute and until very recently was the postdoctoral fellow in multi-species justice at the Sydney Environment Institute, very much missed. Christine's research focuses on the ways in which justice theory perpetuates practices of domination, oppression and violence in settler states broadly and specifically for Maori in Aotearoa, um, New Zealand. So, Christine, many questions for you also, but specifically I'm going to ask you, after looking at the ways in which the law can work on behalf of the natural realm, and I think this links to what Erin started to raise, can you talk about an innovation in how the more, more than human is imagined in law from Aotearoa and what the political possibilities are for giving ecosystems personhood status. So very going back to my initial remarks, that's often seen as capitulating to the logics of anthropomorphism, but what do you see as the possibilities? Okay, thank you, Danny. Um, and thank you to the Sydney Environment Institute for inviting me here and also for all the goodness that has come from the Sydney Environment Institute over the years. So in a sense, um, just <clears throat> um, picking up from Nicole, I'm kind of moving from um, the actual towards the utopian. Uh, but I'll start from the I'll start from the very practical position of the idea of harnessing the legal fiction of corporate personhood. That's really the foundation for the incorporation of businesses, and this allows business to take up loans, to sign contracts, to have bank accounts, 
to donate to political parties. So those are the sorts of things that really only living people can logically do, but which are necessary for a single entity that's made out of multiple parts. And here I mean, you know, in a business, the multiple parts are things like the board and the executive, the workers and the shareholders. <clears throat> so it's this idea of legal personhood that allows them to operate effectively and to protect the individuals within the operation. And this idea of legal personhood or identity is really gaining traction globally as a means to protect the environment. So personhood structures then give ecosystems the sorts of rights and responsibilities that people and communities and corporations have already. And the very first examples of this use of legal personhood came from Aotearoa New Zealand and grew from iwi or, or Māori political units, negotiations with the Crown under the terms of Te Tiriti Te Waitangi. Oh, Waitangi, sorry. That they are part of a reparations process, I think is very important to keep, to keep in our minds. They make a very interesting political move in that they blend the philosophy and the principle and the worldview of Māori, of Māori iwi, with legal personhood structures, which are born of a vastly different philosophical base or foundation. And I think this is really important as the move to legal personhood expands around the planet. So unless there is some sort of commitment to a philosophical position that respects the non-human realm, so legal restructures are very unlikely to be successful. And we've seen that already, for instance, in India and the United States, where attempts have been, you know, attempts at creating legal personhood have been overturned by various um, political powers. But let's talk a little bit about what uh, ecosystem personhood structures achieve. So instead of ecosystems or environments and their individual elements, so the plants and the animals and the fish and the birds, the rivers, the mountains, the flat plains, the soil, the seas, you know. So instead of these being objects, things that are outside the spheres of, ju uh, of justice, things that are in their naming as objects, uh, relevant only insofar as they've got benefit to human beings. They are no longer objects. They become subjects when these personhood laws are passed. They are no longer objects. They become subjects when these personhood laws are passed, is legally recognised. So they're thereby drawn into the community of justice. So the Te Urawera Act of 2014, which is the very first personhood law passed anywhere in the world, includes 11, uh, one. It, it states that Te Urawera is a legal entity and has all the rights, powers, duties and liabilities of a legal person. So that is, Te Urawera is a subject. I want to stress again, or stress for the first time actually, that Naitahu, na, na, uh, sorry, not Naitahu, that's where I'm living, um, Naituhoi, the people of the Uruwera, are integral to this act. So it is designed to protect people and culture and to reinstate the natural realm to its historical place as a member of a community or, or that community. So to a position in which it is understood as a subject, as a sort of source of knowledge and sustenance of mystery and spirituality as ancestral and worthy of respect and inclusion. So this structure might not work in the same way in other jurisdictions where the non-human realm is not regarded in that way. Um, and remembering that caution, though, I still think that the structure of ecological personhood has potential within different political and uh, philosophical structures. And one of the ways, for instance, that I could see it being harnessed is to allow ecological representation in politics. So this is where I'm starting moving into the utopian. 
So in the United States, for instance, corporations won First Amendment Acts earlier this century. That is, they won the right uh, for freedom of speech rights, and that includes the right to a voice in politics. They have a right to represent their interests, not the interests of the individuals who make up the corporation. You know, they have their own political rights. But for the corporation to make a second stream of political influence, as it were, based on the corporation's personhood status. In Australia, and this might come as a surprise to some of you, corporations are obliged to vote in municipal elections in every state, and this is, might also surprise you, except Queensland. So there are two sorts of persons who vote at uh, municipal level. They are the nat natural persons, you and me, and corporations. And that gets slightly more startling when you realise that in Sydney, the city of Sydney and the city of Melbourne, corporations actually have two votes. So a company needs, all a company needs to do is to own or lease property in a municipality to vote in it. Each corporation votes through a human agent who acts on their behalf, on their behalf, on the behalf of the corporation's best interests. Okay, so my point is personhood structures for na the natural realm might achieve a similar end. That is, each ecosystem or river or lake or shoreline could vote directly through an agent who is charged with acting in that ecosystem's best interests. What's important for the human agent is to consider then is the ecosystem's integrity, agency and dignity. It's not about what the environment gives to humans nor about the benefits we accrue from the environment, but treats the environment as an equal party with respect-worthy interests and values of its own and in its own right. So if that was to be realised, we'd end up with three sets of interests being represented in elections and hopefully in the halls of power. Individual system, uh, citizens and corporations both, as I've said, who have a voice now, and the environment itself. Now, that might feel utopian, and I think, I think it's a quite logical extension of this personhood structure, which itself felt utopian just a decade ago. So I invite you to think, what if we got this right? What would, be, what would the world look like? And I suggest we should live in to those possibilities. That's such a beautiful possibility to hold out and a perfect segue to the final panellist, David Schlossberg, this question of altering the halls of power or the constituents of the halls of democratic power. But just before I move to David, I just want to pick up on one aspect of what you said, Christine, which I think is so critical to our deliberations, that the assumption is that if you give personhood to beings other than humans, they're going to be assimilated into the logic of the autonomous liberal subject, whereas what you've offered up is because this was grounded in Maori philosophy, there's a profound contestation, not just of who gets to be a person, but of what a person is, that a person is not nature, nature culture, a person isn't an autonomous subject, but is relational all the way down and so on. So I think you're holding out a number of possibilities. Uh, I want, though, to move to David Schlossberg, Professor David Schlossberg, who probably needs no introduction to this audience, but is a professor of environmental politics at the University of Sydney and the director of the Sydney Environment Institute. David's work focuses on contemporary environmental uh, issues and environmental justice movements, environment and everyday life and climate adaptation policy and planning and has been doing an enormous amount of work thinking about democratic innovations in the last couple of years. So that's what I'm going to ask you about, David. So we've had a lot of conversation about legal and constitutional innovations, about personhood, about rights of nature, but what sort of innovations are there in democratic theory and practice that could help us to institutionalise and realise multi-species justice? 
Yeah, thanks, Danny, and and thanks, everyone. Um, it, you know, last week I gave a talk based on a forthcoming paper from the MSJ Collective that was written by Danny, Christine, Dinesh Waterwell, and myself. And one of the questions that came from the audience, and this was an international legal scholar from the University of Copenhagen, um, was why multi-species justice and rights of nature advocates put so much responsibility and faith in lawyers and the legal system, um, including in international law. Um, and I, I mean, of course, I, I was ready because I've been thinking about this panel to respond to that. But it's true that a lot of the strategy and a lot of the current implementation of, of multi-species justice is based on um, changing legal systems, as we've discussed so far. There is a whole focus on the law from the rights of nature to the attempts to legislate ecocide to personhood. But the answer to the question that I had last week is exactly what I wanted to talk about today, and that's about ways of thinking about democratic innovation in both theory and institutions, and you know, ways of thinking about innovation that takes MSJ seriously. And that relationship between multi-species justice and democratic innovation and institutionalization um, is um, much more rich and diverse, I think, and can be much more rich and diverse than a focus on legal systems alone. So I, I want to do two things. First, I want to talk about a long history, and sorry, I'm, you know, I'm the old sort of institutional memory um, in the room. I do, I do want to talk a little bit about the long history of thinking about institutionalizing ecological relations, or what we call MSJ, and then talk about a couple of current um, democratic innovations. Um, I was lucky enough to study under John Dreisig in 1995, you know, 25, more than 25 years ago, um, John published a paper on listening to the natural world um, that we needed to expand notions of deliberative democracy to encompass ecological communication. Right? He talked about treating signals from the non-human realm like climate change with the same respect that we provide for communication from human subjects. And again, this was 25 years ago. So this idea of institutionalizing what we would call multi-species justice in democratic institutions um, isn't new. Um, uh, you know, uh, similarly, Val Plumwood insisted on what she called listening to the remote. And it was a really beautiful way of framing a political attentiveness to both human and non-human voices that were generally excluded from political consideration. Uh, and then Robin Eckersley, and I'm noticing that I'm talking about all Australian scholars, we should talk about that as well. But Robin has long argued um, about the application of the all-affected principle of democracy, um, that those impacted by a policy should have a say, um, and extending that to the non-human. Um, and Robin, like Dreisick and Plumwood, uses a critical theory approach to insist on an other regarding non-instrumental posture toward the non-human world. And that means treating environments as subjects and agents in democratic institutions, as Christine uh, was talking about. So I started writing about this around 15 years ago with this concept of ecological reflexivity, bringing ecological thinking uh, and a consideration of the impacts of human action on environments into institutional processes, into deliberative processes. Um, that's also become um, central to um, Dreisick and Pickering's recent work on the deliberative politics uh, of the Anthropocene. And then, of course, our friends um, Stephanie Fisher and Tony Burke have written on the political representation of non-humans in ecological democracy, how to recognize non-humans as actants across all scales of politics, how to provide them for agency and representation. Um, and Steph and Tony are thinking on a more global scale, proposing new constitutional institutions, a UN Earth Systems Council, a global ecoregion uh, assembly. So none of this is new. Uh, of course, in the not new category, this sort of institutionalization of multi-species participation has long been central to a number of indigenous philosophies and practices. Um, Kyle White, along with Christine, have written extensively on the inclusion of traditional knowledge of kin and relations with kin um, in climate adaptation work with indigenous communities. Um, so I think there is just a long history of thinking about this institutionalization of the recognition and participation uh, of the non-human. So the, the second thing I wanted to talk about, again, really briefly, because I know time is short, um, is about recent democratic innovation literature. And so in this literature, there's a range of mechanisms, institutions, 
um, initiatives, processes, the main thing that ties them together is this idea of experimentation um, uh, around ways of bringing citizens, civil society organizations, state actors, and others, including the non-human, uh, into new forms of democratic action. And so I think there are currently really two important areas of focus here, um, one a bit more formal than the other. The first, and this follows Dreisig's work, there's a particular interest in using deliberation or deliberative mini-publics to address environmental themes. Deliberative climate assemblies, as we've seen in France and Denmark recently, some of them are at that national level, some of them are more um, focused on cities and regions. Um, that kind of deliberative process is really a major focus uh, in the innovation literature, um, but in part, that's because it's also been a major demand of civil society. Right? Climate assemblies have been part of the demands of Extinction Rebellion in a lot of places. Um, they're seen as a way around the corrupt influence of the fossil fuel industry on the political process, as in addition to a way to bring more subjects uh, of justice into uh, deliberation. So from the perspective of multi-species justice, the key question about such deliberative innovation is how you include the more-than-human world, um, how its invisibility can be countered. So personhood is just one example here. But how do we think about representation? Who speaks for the trees? How do we ensure that representation is as pluralistic as ecological systems themselves? And again, there's a long history here of the concern for broader representation uh, of the more than human in environmental political theory, including that question of the gaze um, and who interprets it. And there's everything here from Martha Nussbaum's discussion of sympathetic imagining to the actual inclusion of ecological science, what an idea, um, to traditional and community knowledges. There are a variety of ways uh, of thinking about representation. And the other point here, as Danny pointed out earlier, is that it's deliberative processes like these that can address those questions of competing valid rights, right? So we do hear that one of the problems theorists have other um, political theorists have with multi-species justice is that we add to the sheer number of sub uh, subjects of justice to be addressed. That adds the potential number of conflicts between those subjects. So some theorists just, uh, just want to then deny subjectivity to this broader set of subjects. But our response has been, well, you institutionalize multi-species justice. You institutionalize this broader set of subjects of justice using democratic innovations, including something like deliberative mini-publics uh, and other process, to engage those conflicts directly. That's why we need to talk about inclusion and representation and voice of the all affected. So I'll finish um, with another example, and this is from some of my own work about the institution of multi-species justice. We need to think about Moving beyond traditional institutions and assemblies and policies, we need to think about those that have simply begun to imagine and design and implement new material flows, new systems, new institutions that are attentive to and respectful of multi-species communities. So I've written about sustainable food systems and food justice movements, community energy groups, the sustainable fashion industry. Um, that kind of political participation is about an embodied form, a practiced form of sustainability, one that's attuned to ideas of connection and relationality and the vitality of the non-human realm. So it's not just about voting or deliberating about a policy. It's about doing, right? Literally and actively changing systems with an eye towards sustainability uh, and participation. Um, so that's all to say that there's a lot to the institutionalization of multi-species relations justice beyond current legal systems or even innovative deliberative designs. We can put multi-species justice into practice in everyday systems and flows. Thank you so much, David. Thank you, everybody. We had hoped to have more time for questions, but we were being a little ambitious, I think. So I, I'm going to use the chair's prerogative and pick one question, but morph it a little bit. Uh, and I'm just going to see if everybody wants to say something about it, because I think it's probably the most radical challenge to institutionalization, and everyone has touched on it somewhat. So it's a question from Alyssa McDonald. Alyssa put it to uh, Nicole in particular, really picking up on this, the last point that you made about inverting the gaze. Uh, so for you, it would be how do we bring uh, the experience, the first person experience of, of non-human subjects, including potentially systems, in as voices themselves? Because I think this is really 
the 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 most significant claim of being a subject of justice is not just that your claims are non-defeasible and can't be discounted in a utilitarian calculation, but that you actually have a say yourself in the processes. So perhaps if all of you could just say something about what might that look like to actually experiment with bringing in other subjects as first-person subjects. Nicole, do you want to start? Well, um, yes, I have, I have no idea. I mean, I can only, you know, think about imaginative attempts to um, envisage what non-human species are thinking or feeling, and um, I, 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 I'm just referencing here a play called Whale, which um, um, is a brilliant play written by... Um, Fleur Kilpatrick, and she uh, and the whale says, "You may think that I'm speaking English, but I'm actually speaking whale. It just comes to your ears as English." And I think that just kind of encapsulates um, where we're at with this. We 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 have to interpret things through our human perspective. But the point I was trying to make at the end of my talk was not so much how we incorporate those perspectives and voices, but just what is the concept of judging. Um, from a non-human perspective, how would and how do non do non-human species actually judge? Um, I, I'm I'm not saying they don't feel or or you know experience all sorts of emotions, but do they actually seek retribution? Do they actually feel that humans should be punished for um, the monstrous conditions that we visit upon non-human species for all the cruelties that we inflict upon them, but they're just complete indifference we have to their face. And what, 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 is, what is this concept of judging, you know, when, when we throw it back onto another species? Just as a very short answer that would be that, you know, I think listening really closely to those communities that have had very, very long, close and intimate relationships with particular places, countries and ecosystems is just extraordinarily important. And I just wanted to briefly pick up on something that Christine said here um, about thinking about these constructs of legal personhood in a broader context of thinking about reparative justice. And I think this is deeply, deeply um, important and it's the space that we need to move toward thinking about our reparative obligations to communities, to people that communities that have been de decimated both by ecocide and by, by genocide. And I think that that reparative um, um, posture needs to be practiced uh, much in a much more widespread sort of way. And that's the way to really listen to the voices of many, many marginalized others, both human and other than human. Thank you. David. My answer to that question is there is, and there should not ever be a single voice, right? Um, uh, the, this interpretation, this representation needs to be plural. You know, as a kid, I loved the book, The Lorax. As an academic, I hate it. Um, because it's all about the one, I speak for the trees. And that's just, that, you know, there are so many ways of understanding um, that need to be brought into representation. And so plurality is the key for me. Thank you. Christine? Well, my, my response really picks up from where Nicole was talking about um, how do we know what they're saying. And I think the point is how do we know what anybody's saying? Everything is interpretive. Uh, you know, we, we will all have been interpreted differently by members of the audience. We've each picked up on something different from the members of the audience. Now, I think if we bother to listen, we can hear the non-human realm talking to us loud and clearly. We can see when an ecosystem is not thriving. We know when an individual creature is um, being abused. So it, 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 I, I think to, um, to, get, to get hooked up or caught up with this idea of how do we know what they're saying is not constructive. Thank you. Thank you. If I can just add to that, I think often it's a good question, but it's often a red herring because we know that ecosystems don't want to be starved of water don't want to be destroyed by poisons and we know that animals don't want to be tortured. So there's not, 
it's not rocket science, as, as they say. And I also just wanted to add, we've been speaking a lot about grand politics, about constitutions, about legal judgments, uh, as, but as well as a number of the panellists spoke about Indigenous peoples and protocols of kinship with the more than human. There are also prefigurative experiments going on, in particularly in animal sanctuaries, where people are already doing this, already working out what does democratic politics look like when you include beings other than humans. So I think the small politics as well as the big politics is really important. Um, so I really want to uh, heartily thank the four panellists. Uh, there is years and decades of thought that goes behind those six or seven minutes of your contributions. So I thank you for your, uh, your work uh, much broader than tonight. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Uh, we can't see you, but we're speaking with your inspiration and it's really great to be in conversation with you. To stay up to date with Sydney Environment Institute's events and the brilliant publications that our members write, you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter, which is in chat, I think, or follow us on our socials. And last, I want to thank the invisible but always very present Genevieve Wright, who makes everything possible in our events. Uh, thank you for attending and I wish you good morning, good night. <laughs>